Morning. Morning. I like that. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Good response. Good morning. Good morning. There you go. Much better. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Good to see all of you, and it's a pleasure to worship together with you this morning. Uh, it's on a beautiful Sunday morning the Lord has created, and once again, we get an opportunity to worship Him, not only in music, but also in word, and so we're glad to see you here this morning. Um, continuing this morning, if you have a bulletin, just a few announcements for you to take note. Right around the corner in a couple of weeks is VBS. So um, put that on your calendar if you haven't done so already. And also a uh, note there for the women's uh, Bible study is on summer break. And also uh, the youth today, they're not meeting today. So. Those are the, really the, the important ones this morning. And also continue to follow us on social media. And also there, if you visited our site, there is an opportunity for you to give to the ministry here at El Paso Bible Church. So I encourage you to do that if you'd like to do that. This morning in preparation for our pastor's message, I'd like for you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'll just be reading one verse out of chapter 4 this morning, 2 Corinthians. And that's verse 6. For it, is the God, it, for, it, for, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Powerful, powerful passage. Let's pray. Once again, Father, with thanksgiving and just thank you for allowing us to be here this morning and to sing praises unto your holy name, to lift up Jesus, Father, above all. And also, Father, for the message that you have for us this morning, that we'd have attentive ears and open hearts, Father, as we go through the, through the study of Peter, Father, and we just... Thank you, Father, for all the things that you do, because we know you're a good, good Father. And we know that you are attentive to all our, our lives, whether the, we're going through tribulations, Father, or your other, other issues in our life, Father. We know that you're there beside us and helping us along. And so that's one of the hopes that we have, Father, is that you never leave us nor forsake us, no matter what. And, Father, we're looking for that blessed hope, that day when... You'll come back for your children, Father, for, your, for all those that have trusted in you and to be forever with you. So we say thank you, Lord, for all your goodness. And for those that are not here with us, Father, for whatever reason, Father, we pray that you bring them back soon. That we may even enhance our worship, Father, as we gather this morning to praise you and to lift up again the name of Jesus, Father. Because it is to him that we give all the praise and the glory for all the days of our life here on earth. We say thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Please stay with us as we begin worship.
Well, good morning. Good morning. Glad to see you all today. Happy Memorial Day. Um, we don't want to let this day go by uh, without remembering people who have given their lives so that we could do this today. On the, on the flip side, I've never met someone who engaged that liability or risk in their lives who would want us to do anything else than what we're doing today, if that makes sense. You have a lot of people throwing guilt trips about your barbecue. Anyone going to have a barbecue today? You're at least going to eat some steak. You're going to have some hot dogs, a little beer. It's okay, right, guys? We have the triple B, right? We actually drink beer on the church property occasionally. You can admit it. Okay. Um, but that's what they would want. Uh, is for you to celebrate the freedom and the life that we have here today. So we want to make sure you do that, okay? Uh, children, you guys can go to Children's Church. Maybe, I don't know when I should have dismissed you, but you can go now. Um, so we're going to do what they would want us to do today um, and continue on in the study of Scripture and the freedom of, that we have to worship as we see fit. And we're going to do that in First Peter this morning. I don't know about you, but I, I really enjoyed the worship today, um, but I don't usually feel elderly, but I did today because our youth worship team uh, was mostly represented today. Brarson, are you still in high school? Okay, so he's actually part of the youth worship team. We have one, one or two guys that aren't in our youth group worship team. We've always started them early at El Paso Bible Church, so we've never really had the leadership gap, at least in my tenure here. Uh, because we get our young people started early leading things and participating in leadership, and so it becomes natural. But occasionally, it still makes my heart go, <laughs> we let kids that little on the stage? What's going on? <laughs> but it's good. It's good. Enjoyed it a lot. So thank you guys for filling in today. Uh, Jacob does a great job of getting them wrangled early and trained early and excited early. So we're thankful for his ministry also. But go ahead and turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I think I even got the verses right on the screen today. Every once in a while I have a typo and then I have to explain what's why I'm not covering the verses on the screen. Or in some cases, why the reader of Scripture isn't even in the right book. Like he'll read something totally unrelated. But today I think I got it all right. And remember that we're talking in this series about what it means uh, to live this life as believers in Jesus Christ that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who are the church, as what Peter describes as those who are choice aliens. Uh, we've used that term. That is, uh, I think, what Peter is indicating in the first few verses of this book, that we are choice because he has presented us with a particular opportunity that he has presented in no other dispensation to serve a particular purpose in his overall plan. And part of that plan is not to be, and this, this comes up, not to be a nation. We are not a nation. We live among the nations, do we not? The answer is yes. We, we do live among the nations. We are not designed to be a political entity um, as the church. That is not a mandate that we have, and that comes up. It's very important to this passage, and we're going to talk about that at some length. But with that role in mind, with that purpose and that function that is not as a nation but is a choice, purpose, and plan, 
that we participate in, we have expectations, right? If I were to tell you that you are, and I am, to live in a place where you have no legal right to be, you have no legal right to be, what are your presumptions about living in that place? You're going to have to make wise decisions, are you not? You're going to have to understand your relative position to the people around you, the world. Uh, You will act wisely, shrewdly. You will have to walk by faith in this life and not by sight, all commands that we're familiar with in Scripture. You will need to understand that you are the beneficiary of what Scripture refers to as being born again, and Peter uses that image here, being regenerated, which grants you citizenship in another realm, citizenship that is of heaven and not of the world. And that being born again grants you the right to an inheritance that is imperishable. Because the seed of which we are born is imperishable. And Peter tells us that it is waiting for us, that it is ready, that it is reserved for us, and that we are protected until we receive it. That there is nothing that can stand between us and receiving what God has promised to give us. He has promised to preserve us, to protect us, and to reward us for fulfilling our purpose here. And that that new birth gives us some obligations. And we had to talk at length, I think, in 1 John about the nature of obligation because, and maybe we need a reminder here, and that is that love and obligation are not mutually exclusive. Now, nobody, guys, I'm not telling you to go home and, and talk to your wife, honey, I am so obligated to love you. Just, that's probably not going to work out well, okay? Um, but you are. You are obligated to love your wife. By the way, wives, and don't take this the wrong way, but you are never t- commanded to love your husband. This came up in a conversation this last week. You are not commanded to love your husband. You are commanded to love believers in general as the body of Christ. But not in that special way. You are commanded to respect and obey your husband. Just so we're clear. And that's an obligation. But love is an obligation, and that's how Peter represents it. Also, that you have an obligation to love one another from the heart, sacrificially, right? Seeking the best interests of others at cost, at personal cost to yourself, if necessary, and it will be. It will be. Loving anyone has a cost. Longing for the Word is an obligation that we have, to moderate our longings, to direct our longings so that we long for the pure milk of the Word as infants long for their mother's milk, is the picture. So that we can then internalize that information and offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. These are things that are given to us, granted to us, obligations, responsibilities, and gifts, and rewards that are given to us because of who we are as choice aliens in the world. Now, verse 9 is where we are today, and we're going to get, I think, through verse 12. We'll get through verse 12. 
I say that like I have an option. I will get through verse 12. All right. Verse 9 says this. It has a but there. Funny, we don't have any weird things, you know, like that corny saying about therefore. We don't have that about but. I don't know why. We have no corny sayings about but. But, now it's dead. It's not a strong contrastive. It's a narrative continuation. So the argument is continuing. But you are a choice and a klektos race, a royal priesthood, a holy ethnos, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, there are a lot, most of the people in the world that call themselves believers love this verse. They love it. Love it. Love it. You may realize that we are not most people at El Paso Bible Church. We still love it, but we don't love it for that reason. We love it because we understand it. That doesn't sound overly arrogant, does it? I'm not trying to sound arrogant. One of the requirements of what I do for a living is to speak directly when I need to. Um, Most of the people who love this verse do not understand it. They are what we call replacement theologians. They believe that the church has somehow superseded Israel in the plan of God, that God is done with Israel and is not going to fulfill those physical, temporal, or eternal blessings to the nation in deference, deference to the church now somehow spiritually receiving those things. That is a misunderstanding of what Peter is doing here. I'll try to explain that, okay? Uh, No one argues that these are not phrases that are used to describe Israel in the Old Testament. Israel is these things, continues to be, was those things, is those things, shall be those things as a fulfillment of God's unconditional covenant to the nation, descended biologically from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the land that was promised. They are. No one's arguing that. A choice race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Nobody argues that point. What is Peter doing with that with those illustrations, those parallels, he's providing an allusion to our role currently in this time, in this place, that is similar in in distinct ways to what God was doing temporally with Israel at a time and will do again. How How do I know that? Well, There's some markers that would be here, I think, if Peter was saying that we as the church, as choice aliens, as those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and believers in Jesus Christ, justified by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, the church, which is made up of all peoples, of all nations, not biologically related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have a function that overlaps. He doesn't say you are now the choice race. That little definite article means something, right? Doesn't it? 
Right now, it's anarthrous. Can God choose a group of people to do something that's not Israel? Yeah. He chose Cyrus, did he not? The crazy thing about that is, right? Now, this is why you ought to come to Sunday school, because then you get illusions and parallels, right? Who gets called, Sunday school attenders, the servant of Yahweh in Scripture? Two people that I see, at least in the early part of the Old Testament, Moses and Joshua, the servant of Yahweh. Who does Yahweh call his servant? Cyrus, a pagan king. We could explain all sorts of different. He chose Egypt to preserve, protect, and provide for Israel to grow in number and to be used in a particular way. But here the reference is not to a replacement. He did not say Israel was the choice race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the laos, the people for God's possession, which is different than ethnos, the nation of God's own possession. He said, you are a, and there's some overlap in the way that God is using the church in the temporal world right now on Sunday morning that has some, that can be described that way. Their choice for a purpose. Israel was choice for a purpose. And we are choice for a purpose as aliens. And he uses that aliens and strangers in the same passage. But we don't replace them. Now, you may not be convinced by that argument, but that's not my only argument against that. That's okay if you're not. And I'm not arguing with you. My my wife and I had a discussion about having to put up an arguing jar in the kitchen Uh, because she's been having some trouble with that. And so I made it radically expensive to argue with my wife. Radically expensive. Like poverty-inspiring expensive for certain children of mine to argue with my wife. I suggest that something similar might be required for some of you at some time, and you should not renege on your duty to strike your children into poverty should they argue with your wife, men. They don't own anything anyway, legally speaking, right? Anyway, for the good of the order. But what I mean when I'm arguing is I'm presenting a discussion with validation, right, for my interpretation. That's what we're doing, kind of an academic argument, if you will. Their choice for a purpose, and it does ad- it's adequately described in this overlap here, that you have a purpose, that you are set apart, that you're mediating God's truth to people on the earth during this time, that you have a role, and it is a royal role because you are offered the opportunity to be co-heirs and co-rulers with Jesus Christ in the kingdom that is to come as the church. That overlaps. I mean, you can't argue that point, that it overlaps, but it does not replace. Another reason I know that is that there's a purpose statement here, very clear, so that, it's a hint of clause, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All of those descriptors have one singular purpose for the church. Now, that's not something you would say about Israel, right? 
Israel, uh, we talked about it in Joshua today, Israel was supposed to exterminate seven nations in the land as part of God's judgment. Guys, let me advise you, the church does not have that mandate, so don't try to exercise it, okay? Yes? Can we all agree on that one basic point? You may have to exterminate somebody that attacks you, but don't go after seven nations of your own choosing and blame God for that. You'll get in trouble. And don't blame it on me, because I told you otherwise, if you choose to do it. But the illusion for the church is to have one particular purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of God to a particular people, but for a particular reason. Now, Israel was supposed to recognize the excellencies of God, but if you are to go and take this word, arete, which excellencies, and you go back to the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, those scholars never use that word except for once in Habakkuk 3.3, and that is God proclaiming His own excellence. I am excellent. That wasn't part of Israel's mandate, and so it was, just wasn't. More than that, this description is applied to Gentiles out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's the testimony, the excellencies of him who has done this for you, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is a particularly Gentile description. That's what Ernie read today. You, you understand that historically that wasn't Israel's position. At the foundation of Israel as a nation in the Sinai Peninsula, at Mount Sinai, with God literally present among them in smoke and fire, right, on the mountain. Their constitution nationally was given by virtue of revelation from God of who He is and what He had planned for them. They had the light from the very beginning of their nation. The only time you see that somebody is called from darkness into light is when they are among the ethnoi, among the Gentiles, among the nations of the earth. That's how Paul describes his ministry, right? Back in Acts, he says, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That's Paul's ministry. Ministry to the Gentiles. Now, the reason that matters is because it's presented as a personal testimony. Can Israel testify? Could Israel have ever testified how, personally, how God brought Gentiles from darkness into light? Could they offer that personal testimony? They were Jews. They could testify personally how God gave them light and brought them into more light. But Gentiles were something different. They were far off and they were brought near. They were in the darkness and they were brought into light. So you have to have, even if you think that it's valid to allegorize a command and spiritualize a command, you have to have the literal command to start. And Israel never had that command. 
And so even if you want to try to make it a spiritual reality for the church, they simply, you can't do it. I hope that makes some kind of sense. Israel was not told to provide a personal testimony about how God brought them from darkness into light. Because their nation was founded, their very constitution was founded on Yahweh's self-revelation. So he extends the illusion. And I think we ought to talk about, there are a couple different words. There is ethnos, there's genos, there is laos. The most common reference here in this to the church is laos, which just means an identifiable group of people, right? In exile, you would not rightfully call Israel a, an ethnos, but you would still call them a genos or a laos, an identifiable culture, people that have shared similar language, similar culture, similar values. But he says this, for you were once not a people. Is that true of Gentiles? It's not a people. Now you are God's people, God's laos, people of shared culture. Are we that? People would argue maybe that Sunday is the most segregated day of the week in the United States. So maybe we don't do it perfectly, right? But yes, the church as a whole shares values. We trust in Jesus Christ and for life centrally to our culture. It's a little looser, right? And he says, you didn't have an identity as a people. Now you do as a group, a shared culture, shared values. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, each of us has a testimony, I think, I describe it in terms that may be harsher than I would describe of you, but I have done a lot of stupid things in my life for which God spared me the consequences. Don't raise your hand if you're with me. I'll just trust that there's somebody else in the room that has done lots of stupid things for which at least God prevented the full brunt of retribution and consequences for my life. I'll just assume that that's true. You could just say, okay, that'll be okay. We all have testimony to give people about God's mercy in our lives, how we did not experience the full weight of the consequences of our foolishness, sinfulness, wickedness, and stupidity. Sometimes all four of those together, they're not mutually exclusive. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And we had a purpose in the previous section, but no imperative. Right? And this is, this, is, this is what's funny to me. A lot of times people sometimes criticize the way expository teachers teach. And one of the reasons is that they, <laughs> they don't give us anything to do. They don't fix any problems. They don't tell us how to behave on Monday. They don't tell us how to behave on Thursday when we've forgotten what we learned at church, but we can at least know one thing about how to do. 
If the Bible doesn't tell you what to do in a particular verse, I'm not going to insert one. But then when something is there, people complain about that too. When I tell somebody, Scripture says that as choice aliens in the world, as strangers that sets our expectations for how we're supposed to live in this world, that Scripture teaches that we should abstain, that means put distance between you, up echo, between you and fleshly lusts. They go, well, what really is a fleshly lust, Pastor? Are you got, you're just being legalistic. Guys, you can't have it both ways. Either you let me give you an imperative when the Bible gives you an imperative, and let me not give you an imperative when the Bible doesn't give you one, but you can't argue both, right? So the Bible says that. Put distance between you and the fleshly lust, which wage war against your suitcase, your lives, your beings, your persons. The Bible is kind of weird, isn't it? We have people here who have been uh, in the middle of war. That was their job. They volunteered to do it, at least in the past couple generations. We haven't had anybody not volunteering, at least in general. I'd have never met one that if they saw war coming, wouldn't get out of its way. If they had the option. Can I say that, guys? If you can avoid going to war, you would do it. But when the Bible says that you're to avoid fleshly lust, put distance between you and fleshly lust, because it brings warfare into your life, we want to equivocate. Well, that, that's not very fleshly. That little fast. That's just being American. Or whatever. You're aliens and strangers in the world. We weren't an identifiable group, and now we are. We didn't have received mercy, now we have. Listen, that's part of what makes us weird in the world. The mercy that we've received, everyone claims to want that to which they are entitled. Yeah? Right? No? Y'all haven't noticed that? Uh, Here in El Paso, I have heard that people uh, are getting paid more than they've ever been getting paid in the service industry. And nobody seems to be able to get anybody to work for more than three days at a time. Almost nobody makes it past their 90-day probation. Why? And I'm entitled to more. Yeah? It's out there, believe me. Just trust me, okay? If you haven't encountered it, praise Jesus. What makes it weird makes us weird is that we, we have received mercy as our identity in the church defines it, right? How, how many times 
How many times do you hear anybody in the world say anything about how they didn't get what they deserved and that being a good thing? Does anybody in the world recognize that at all? Everybody in this world on their own merit deserves nothing but divine wrath. You ever hear that from the world? Everybody wants what they deserve, what they deserve, what they deserve, what they think they deserve. But the imperative here for those who have received mercy is to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war on our suitcase. These are things that bring conflict, that bring dangerous situations, that bring risk into our lives, struggle, fighting. You know, and I... I have apparently raised a family of wordsmiths, and they start arguing with me. They, they see this as a, as a contingent statement. Well, can I have fleshly lusts that don't wage war on my soul? The Bible doesn't ever recognize that category. All fleshly lusts wage war on your soul, on your life, on your being, all of them. Peter's just making that clear. There's no exceptions Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Galatians 5, 24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now you need to understand that terminology because probably half of you here, ladies, are wearing a little crucifix or a little cross on a necklace. That's a dirty word in the Bible. Cross, crucified. Paul is not mincing words here. Those fleshly lusts, he said, in your identity in Christ have been crucified. It is the most horrific execution method you could come up with, the most torturous, traitorous one that the most aggressive empire the world has ever seen perfected as an execution method. It is something that you do to your enemies when you have no fear of reprisal, no fear of vengeance. You would never choose to crucify an enemy if you were worried about their descendants coming back and fighting you. It was an indication that you were fearless in what you were doing to that criminal. And that's the terminology Paul says. As a benefit of our identity in Christ, we have crucified those things. We don't need to fear what putting them away brings in our lives. Because we tend to treat it like there's a spiritual HOA, right? Anybody ever lived in a neighborhood with an HOA? I intentionally refused to do so. I only lived in one neighborhood with an HOA because it was nearly defunct. It had negative money and nobody serving on the board, so I figured it was as good as dead. Because I don't need somebody to tell me that my grass is a fourth of an inch too tall. Your spiritual life does not have an HOA in it, right? If it sees you succumbing to the fleshly lusts that wage war on your soul, it doesn't say you to trim them, tell you to trim them back, right? It's not like you go to... See, I started... When I hit 40, my barber started asking me, would you like those eyebrows trimmed, sir? And I said, no, but my wife would. 
It's a warning. That's not the way this works. No one's going to tell you, hey, those eyebrows are a little too long. Those weeds are a little too tall. That oil is a little overdue for changing. You don't engage at that level with fleshly lusts because it's not a maintenance problem, it's war. You abstain from them. Separate. Verse 12, last verse. I think we got time. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, among the nations. That's actually important. The ethnoi, ethnicin, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Keep your behavior excellent. People sometimes accuse people like me who teach simple justification. Simply by grace. Simply by faith. Simply in Christ alone. With no strings attached. No obligation. No promissory note. Sometimes falsely accuse me of saying that your behavior doesn't matter. Your behavior matters. (laughs) Your behavior can stand in the way of you achieving God's purpose for leaving you on the earth. It can inspire uh, discipline in your life. That is terrible. Awful. We talked about that out of 1 John. Something that you wouldn't want to do. But here it's key to the purpose. We're to, we are choice, royal, what are all the words? Man, we've got a lot of descriptions here. Choice, royal, holy, God's possession, a people now who have received mercy, and we have this purpose that can be short-circuited if we fail to keep our behavior excellent in, among the nations in which we live. So we need to keep our behavior excellent as we reside in those places, like strangers, like aliens, not using that as an excuse for trying to get away with everything we can get away with, but using it as um, leverage for being excellent in ways that are unexpected. Holding fast to doing those good things. Being obedient. I don't know if you've noticed... I won't speculate why not, perhaps, but maybe you've you've noticed that doing good things in the world doesn't always bring praise from the world, does it? Being obedient to Christ doesn't always bring praise. It usually brings slander. In fact, the Sunday that we decided that we were going to uh, open these doors again recently, a a couple years ago now, we got more hate tossed at us electronically, verbally, all sorts of ways not called grandma killers and everything else simply because we open the doors. Slanderous, God-awful accusations from our community. Being obedient doesn't always bring praise. 
But Peter doesn't care about that. He says, and the things which they slander you as evildoers, that being slandered for, ev- for doing good, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So those same people who are now slandering, if we are faithful and persistent to obey, will be brought to repentance. Change their mind about what is happening and be brought to glorify God in the day of visitation. That that phrase is used to mean sometimes judgment. And it could be a double meaning here, I guess. I don't like assigning that. But it also talks about um, somebody exercising concern. We talk about it that, right? People ask pastors, how much visitation they have done. And they use that as a barometer for how much you care about people. In our culture, people actually don't like to be visited that much. Um, As much as they did. But that's the idea. That you go out of your way to visit someone because you have concern for them. That's how it's used in Acts 15, 14. God first concerned himself. He first visited himself. Showed concern about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. They will be brought to a point to glorify God in the day when his mercy is visited upon them. And so, when people slander you for doing good, smile. That's the plan. That's the strategy, and it's not mine. It is a strategy from God. Peter's going to talk about the difference between that and getting slandered for doing wrong, which is a potential also. But in this one, when you're doing what is right, when you are obeying, and you get slandered for it, take it on the chin, folks, with a smile. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it does give us imperatives, that it does describe obligations for us that are designed for your glory and our good and for our fulfillment of your purpose in our lives here on this earth, looking towards the future for the inheritance that is reserved and ready for us, and we thank you for that. We love you, and we thank you most of all for the life that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ, simply by grace simply by faith in your Son alone. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Please join us for worship.
best.